Hello. Hello, John. Hi, Dan. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Everything good? Yeah, things are great. Good. How about there at your end? Pretty good. Can't complain. Everything's okay. Everything's all mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds like you were racing around this morning. Yeah, I don't like to do that, but you know, you gotta. You, you, I do what must be done, John. That's uh, that's what I what I do. I do what must be done. Hmm. Is that right? I was reading Twitter. Now that you're back on Twitter, and uh, I, you said something about theme songs, and I retweeted it, and some people uh, commented back to me and said that they were hoping that this could be a discussion point for us. And I oh, don't, oh. I don't know if you want to do that. If you want to keep Twitter and the show separate, or if there's, you know, if there's can be some overlap, but I'd like to read the tweet and then, you know, we'll leave it up to you. If you want to talk about it, uh-huh. you say 12 hours ago, mm-hmm. uh, the, <clears throat> the best TV theme is house of cards. The worst is Game of Thrones. The theme for The Crown is a poor imitation of Game of Thrones that somehow isn't worse, and the Jessica Jones theme is a House of Cards imitation that isn't too bad. Hashtag deep thoughts. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with most of any of that. Yeah. Um, What, what, uh, what, What issues do you have with it? Well, to start with, I love the House of Cards theme. It's one of my all time favorite themes. I think there is, there is just enough menace below the Mm. surface and it, it has just the right amount of drama. It has, maybe, I don't know if, if legally we can play a clip. Here, let me do it. <laughs> How's that? Is that about right? Well, there's that, there's that one part that goes underneath it that that's kind of the menace. It's do 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 do, and that that's the part that gets me. That gets me every time. But how can you say that Game of Thrones is the worst? There is there is that part in Game of Thrones where it's I think it's like the second time that the theme is sort of presented. Where oh yeah, they, and it goes from minor to major. Yes, I come agree, on, agree, that doesn't no. pull you in. I agree. That is the single interesting thing about the theme. But that's good it's, enough for me. I no, love that theme. Not, the intro with the little miniatures and little interesting uh, tilt shifting. In no, no, that's the only thing interesting about it. Oh, it's a, no, I love that theme. For once, that's just for a great for a great moment. The composer did one slightly interesting move, and it's like, oh, uh huh, good, and then, and then uh, back to uh, garbage. Well, I I don't know. I think I think I think the Game of Thrones. I don't know if it's better than House of Cards. It's so different. It's hard for me to compare them. But it's certainly not the. You're saying the worst TV theme of all time. Yeah. Or the worst TV theme of all time is Game Game of Thrones. Yeah. You stand by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to just you know, that's why I put it in that tweet. I wanted to go on record and say, "Look, I understand that the Game of Thrones theme has a lot of elements which are designed to give you like a big plate of sugary cookies and say, "Here are these delicious cookies that you are dying for." 
and people <laughs> gobble it up yeah. because A, it has the menace that you want from your menacing show of knights and, and miladies. Sure, yeah. It has, you know, some cellos, which are, you know, as Dr. Dre says, boy, those cellos are the darkest of all the instruments, scariest of all the instruments. Is that, is that what he's, that's what he says? Oh, yeah. yeah. Dr. Dre says, if you want to add some scary sounds to your, to your tunes, you just throw those cellos on there. And it's true. <laughs> I didn't know he said that. It's true. You think it's the bass, but it's not. It's those, it's those grinding cellos. Scary, scary, scary. And it's got off time. It's got a waltz in it. So, so you think that it's, you know, that it's clever or alternative, or if you're, if you're somebody that's, you know, trying to count where the one is, uh, there's a little extra jog in there. So it sounds like, whoa, it's arty or it's nutty or where's the, you know, where does it turn around? Uh-huh. And it's, uh, you know, it's got this like, um, Sort of little ascending one, two, three, da, 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 that makes it feel medieval or oldie timey. And so it just, it's just like, here are all your delicious cookies. And so, yeah, I was going to say, everything yeah. you've described is that's a win after win after win for me. Mm, except that it's like the corniest iteration of every single one of those. It's like the so you're song, saying those are those are tropes that have been piled on top of each other to make the the biggest trope possible. That's right. And if it if you listen to the song Uptown Funk, <laughs> yeah, don't believe me, just watch that one. Yeah, Uptown Funk makes the Uptown Funk is a classic example of this, where every element of Uptown Funk is ostensibly good funk right the guitar part is good the bass part is good the singer's got you know singing voice there's some like sassy lyric about check me out there's some you know it right. actually uses the word funk in it uh-huh. just just in case you weren't clear on it yeah and so everybody in our modern day listens to it and they're like huh it's good funk funky yeah but the problem is that every single one of those things is the corniest iteration of itself. Uptown Funk is not memorable. No one will ever remember Uptown Funk. It just filled the the role of that particular, like in that moment in in music. It was like, hey, I know. Let's do a song that sounds like like a funk pastiche, and people now will will buy it because it's the because it's better than anything else at that moment pretending to be that same thing. So it's like, it stands alone. It's, it's all we had, but there's nothing, there's nothing there. Like James Brown has songs where he says five words in the whole song. Huh? I'm here. It's me. Huh? You know, just like nothing (laughs) happening. Yeah. And he communicates more and better Every single human emotion and everything about funk. Uh-huh. Yeah. He is a hundred thousand times more funky than this song with all these words and this like, don't believe me, just watch over and over. Don't believe me, just watch one yeah. more time. Don't believe me, just watch. It's like, it's like some kind of nothing. There's nothing there. Whereas the House of Cards theme. Oh, it develops so, it's happening in so many modes and it's developing so many 
crazy themes that don't resolve and don't let you off the hook. And it's very inventive. And it's also, you know, based around a loop, but you can't really find the loop exactly. Things are looping, but you don't know. I agree with you that that, that the House of Cards is one of the best. I just oh, um, it's it's dangerous. It's dark. And then when you listen to the Crown theme, and you realize that the Crown theme is based on the Game of Thrones theme, like every element of the Game of Thrones theme is recapitulated in the Crown theme. Mm. Although they don't, they're not giving you all the medieval. Uh, like, like taint tickle that Game of Thrones has. They're not, you know, they're not, they're not allowing the <laughs> I like, menace. I like that term. You know, they're not giving you this gratification. They're just aping it. But like, oh, but it's a real queen in modern days, so we can't like. That's a very popular theme. We should have a theme like that. Boo, double boo. It's just that. So the so the crown theme is like it's worse but like somehow it's not worse because it's less offense it's the only offense it's committing is copying a shit thing it's not the shit thing that invented the whole i mean i when game of thrones i love game of thrones tv show but like i have to go into the bathroom and plug my ears during the theme it's so and i realize you can fast forward through it but i don't know how to use the remote control And at the end of Game of Thrones, there's also a. They like grab the melody of Ring of Fire or something. There's like an actual ripoff of like a full melodic ripoff of a Johnny of, Cash song. Uh, is it Ring of Fire? Oh, except the problem is if you put in Game of Thrones. And Ring of Fire, you're going to get all this like fanfic about people that are like the Ring of Fire, where the sword is. I don't want to. No, yeah, that's not no, going to happen. I'm looking at it but, too. That's not what you want. The drinking game or something. And and somebody's going to correct me and write in because they they also could not fail to. Someone out there cannot fail to also have noticed that there is a melodic, uh, like full on just heist of a. Uh, at the at the end of the theme, I can sit here and listen to the theme for a second. I mean, you you've told you've spoken on the show before about how as a as a musician for so many years that when you hear music, it's different from the way that like I hear music or or normals hear music because you no longer hear a song. You oh, hear oh, it's Ghost Riders in the Sky. That's what it is. Do, 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 do. Ghost riders in the sky. It's full on. It's just like it's so it's so done that it's not even. They stole Ghost Riders in the Sky. Yeah, Taken and Ghost Riders in the Sky was legitimately like like menacing and scary in mm-hmm. its time. Mm-hmm. Ghost riders in the sky. I mean, that's not exactly the same, but, but if, if uh, Portugal, the man had to like, not only give a hat tip, but they actually went to oh, Dozier, Holland's Dozier, whoever wrote, please, Mr. Postman. Right. And said, Hey, we're going to, 
we're going to take that melody. Is that cool? Uh, and got permission. You know, they didn't get permission. <laughs> There's only seven notes, John. There are only seven notes, but they, they copped to it. They like, you know, they're public about it. They're not, they didn't pull a vanilla ice and say, what? No, it's like, I just, right, this mine, just came to me. I don't know. Do, 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 do. So anyway, I've got, you know, as a musician, right, you are listening to how things are built rather than right. That's, just, what, that's what you said. You said you hear a certain mic position of, of an, one of the drums. You hear a, a, the way the mix is done and that you can't you actually said and maybe this is something you could elaborate on. But you mm-hmm. actually said uh, you can no longer really enjoy mu- hearing music anymore because your brain immediately starts pulling it apart and you only hear. Uh, you only hear these elements that you're talking about. You can't just hear the thing as as a whole. Is that still true? Well, it's not that it's not that I cannot hear a song, um, but I'm, you know, I'm I and it's but it is that I'm not just able to hear the things I do hear them. But I'm not talking about the recording of Game of Thrones. The recording of Game of Thrones. You're fine with that. Is, no, it's also super corny. Oh. I mean, like. <laughs> It's just you. I mean, all they needed in there was like to bring a like a piper and a lute out to like dance around the fire, like the like the music video for Men Without Hats. Yeah, I knew like, you were going to mention when you said that. It was the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah, yeah. It's just like it's like how do I make a song that sound? You know, how do I how do we do this recording so that it sounds like evil medieval uh, without actually making music with medieval instruments so we're just going to do it with an orchestra uh it's just like cheese ball they could have added one inventive thing to the recording that's not even what i'm yelling about no it's the composition and the composition is like and i'm not a composer i'm not a classical composer but this isn't really classical composition either like this is just a guy writing pop music but he's standing up waving a baton around um, at, because there's no, there are no elements to this that it's, it, it, the song sounds like it was written on guitar. Um, like even bad big band jazz has more elements. You know, this, like you say, this has got the one thing sawing away over here, dun, 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 and then the, over here, uh, da, 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 da. it's got these two kind of like counter melodies, uh, but not anything more than that. It's not like it's got, it's, it doesn't have like three elements. So it infuriated me because I could see why it was so why it was why it was so popular why it was so ear candy ish ear candy <laughs> candy mm-hmm. like i got it was like watching um you could just see the tricks i guess that's what it is the tricks were right on the surface and i love tricks in music all kinds of tricks tricks are are like a great part of writing tunes if you if you think about like um if you think about Heart of Glass. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What a great song. 
Heart of Glass is a great song, and they've got that they've got that trick three quarters of the way through where they where they slice a beat out of it, and and they said later that the reason they did it was that they you know they'd made this disco song, but they were a punk band and they wanted to fuck people up. They could see people dancing to their tune, and they they sliced a beat out to make people. What, like, not be able to dance to it? Yeah, well, to stutter in that moment. They wanted to see people <laughs> like go, Ugh! They're basically trolling their listeners. Totally trolling everybody because, you know, they'd made this like super groovy song and they knew they were going to go out and play it and they were going to have this audience just, just, and I, I used to do that accidentally. Like my songs had a lot of time signature changes and, and moments where things that were really groovy would suddenly slam into something that wasn't. And I and it used to break my heart because I would get a room full of people dancing and I'd be like, yeah, we're having fun. And then it, then I would realize, oh shit, the next part, like the song is about to totally <laughs> switch gears into this thing that I really was excited about expressing my feelings. But now I realize I've got a room full of people dancing and they're going to stop. I'm going to, I'm artificially killing this groove right because i'm too smart you know like i make i'm trying to make music and i'm and i'm overthinking it and then i would we'd slam into the into the bridge and everybody would stop dancing and get serious again and 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 i was like ah but but you know uh blondie had the luxury of being able to i mean but they didn't it's not like that one little sliced beat actually killed the groove what it was was a super cool trick it was a hook it was another hook. Right. So when you listen to songs, you're thinking like, what are they doing? Like, where are the hooks? How are they getting them in there? And admiring a brilliant hook, either just like a simple melodic hook where you're like, oh, that's a pretty tasty little melody. Like it's one of the things that makes Colin Malloy so frustrating to me because I want to be, you know, I like competing with the Decembrists. I like having uh, Colin Malloy as a frenemy. Like I want <laughs> to, I want to dislike him and them because it's just intuitive to me. But his melodic gift, where he uses a, he has a, a much narrower singing range than I do, but he uses that range very effectively, and his hooks are very hooky and at the end of the day i have to come out and go yeah there's no denying it's not i'm not somebody that's like oh the decembrists are popular just because they got they have that um you know they do this like ye olde ship captain barrow boy style mm-hmm. of music mm-hmm. and it's all just a gimmick and there are a lot of people that are like oh the decembrists is just gimmicky but no, the songs are the songs are genuinely good, and so I can't be on the hater squad, even though I want to be, even though the entire year that they uh, that we toured together and were were um, and we had two records on the on the charts at the same time, and theirs was doing better, and then ultimately way better than mine. Mm. And every magazine article when I was on tour was like. Oh, the Decembrists, finally a band for, you know, for smart people where the lyrics really are fun and engaging and have meaning. And you can finally listen to a band where the lyrics matter. And I'm out there like, what the fuck? (laughs) 
<laughs> what about no. me? <laughs> well, not only what about me, but like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, oh, ye hardy har, you know, I got my anchor tattoo or whatever. It's like, no, no, my lyrics are, there's a lot more going on. But you could not deny that there that he had hooks and they had interesting parts. They were making music that was that was you're making you're making good, music for, for thinking people though. When you make music, well, that's what I thought too. But that's not what the magazine writers thought, and that's not what record buyers thought. Well, it's it's what my kids and I think. <laughs> well, I know, but you guys are are uh, you're you know you drank the Kool Aid. But however, what I'm saying is that that there are a lot of like that I got a lot of tweets about that particular like two AM tweet that I sent out. Uh that were like, Well, what about the theme to the Jeffersons? And I'm like, I clearly in the tweet I am not talking about the history of T V shows. And honestly, if you know me at all and have ever read my Twitter before, it's clear that those are the only four shows I have watched in the last <laughs> eight years. I've watched The Crown. I've watched Game of Thrones. I've watched... Because um, you just you think you're going to put uh, House of Cards up against like Rockford Files as far as theme songs go? Rockford Files, come on. Well, taxi. I mean, they're not taxi they're not operating in the same world. Like those, the TV themes of the seventies and eighties are written by are, are written by theme music composers. Okay, okay. So, so your all time favorite, and this can be it only has to be you were alive. So, in your lifetime, what what is the best uh, theme to a TV show that you've ever heard? Rockford Files. Uh, like the song, the, those themes were pop songs The Rockford files. I mean, it doesn't have any words in it, but it's fully a pop song. It was on the radio. So is that your favorite, favorite one then? Well, but I don't, you, 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 you can't even do that. Like you can do it. Sure. You can do it. No, you can't. I mean, it's a what, song that went with a TV show. That's that could be it. What, the, the Bosom, Bosom Buddies theme song? Go ahead, it's my life. It's a great theme song. The yeah. Courtship of Betty's Father is a great yeah. theme song. Every, yeah. The Brady Bunch is a great theme song. <laughs> the thing is, what you're describing is like, so there's a, there are pop songs on the radio, but these are TV themes are pop songs which also advance the concept of the show. Right. So you're, you're not just talking about listenable. You're talking about something that actually... It, like you said, advan- advances the concept of the show that makes the show better and, and ties into the show in a way. It sets up the show. You don't have to, you, you can, you can start watching it. You're saying you won't pick season. a best, a best one though. Well, the thing is <clears throat> you have to, you have to take into consideration is the theme song doing its job. Okay. As this is a different question than, is it a good pop song? Right. Of course. Because you're saying not what is the best, which song is the best pop song of all the TV themes. You're saying, which is the best TV theme? And so is it the love boat theme? Now I'm not going to put the love boat theme on the record player, but we all know the words to the love boat theme and, (laughs) and we continue. I mean, people my age, even to this day, if somebody is telling a story about some, um, 
like first date they went uh-huh. on. You want to sing and that like, song? Yeah, and they're like, oh yeah. And so anyway, then we were like, then he bought me a drink, and it was you know, and I, you'll still go like the love boat. <laughs> yes, it's, you know, it's a it, it it's like a way of communicate. It's like an advertising jingle uh, that that you repurpose or. The theme from Cheers. I mean, if you're going to like do a song, if you're going to do a TV theme that like accomplishes its that, that, job. The, this theme song to Cheers, though, is in a category and league entirely of its own. Uh, which my understanding is that was also a pre-existing song. Like that was its own song. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But I, that to me stands as a, as a testament to what everyone doing a theme song for a TV show should hope. To achieve because it sets the mood, it sets the tone, it, as you say, it advances the concept of the show, it sets up the show, it's mm-hmm. everything that you could possibly, and then combining that with the way that they did the visuals of the... It's a great a show uh, opener. So good. But when you think about the Jefferson's theme... Yeah, that's good too. The Jefferson's theme describes all the events leading up to the beginning of the show. No, it does. It, it, there's nothing in the Jefferson's theme that, uh, that describes the, the, um, the actual like layout of the Jefferson's life in their high rise apartment today. Mm -hmm. It starts with, you know, it's like the backstory basically. Right. Right. It's the backstory for how, so you, you hear the song and you watch episode one of the show, you already know how they got there. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to wonder. It explains it. And it's a, and in, in that sense, it's genius. And p- p- younger people may not, may not have seen the Jeffersons, but we all knew every word to the Jeffersons theme song. And, but then you look at the theme to All in the Family. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit An extremely rare instance where the main characters of the song are singing the theme for you. Right. Sitting at a piano and playing and singing the theme. And a lot of the opening credit, like, you're just driving around their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And they're singing this this sort of pre-existing song that communicates so much about who they are. They're, like, having a good time sitting around the piano singing this song and are themselves unaware that the song is speaking about them. Right. But in ways that are not entire. I mean, it's like not. The, it's, kid, the kids would say it's, it's very meta. Yeah, right. It is. It's extremely meta. The, 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 the TV makers are conscious of a level of meaning that the, that the protagonists themselves are not conscious of. Right. And, that's pretty good work. You know, that's an extra level of thinking on top of already a song that's pretty hooky and memorable. And then, you you know, uh, I just want to now bring back in as exhibit C. Don't believe me. Just watch. <laughs> don't believe me. Just watch. It's like there's nothing there, there's nothing there. And you put it against Game of Thrones where the theme is, what does Game of Thrones theme say? It says, fakey medieval. And that's it. That's all it says. Here And again, did you hear us the first time? 
fakey medieval fakey medieval chanting sound okay is there an example of a show in that category of sort of game of thrones medieval show could be you know something in that time period or, or even a movie that you feel does a good job of that that stands as an example of what game of thrones maybe could have been well how many knights in shining armor uh tv shows are there there haven't been a lot but i mean i i would throw into that mix i you know they've got that show vikings ever seen that one no i don't i haven't either but i know it's out there but you know you got a lot of movies that are like that or you're not including movies oh no you can you can include movies i mean it's um like what is the theme to uh gladiator i cannot remember it i'm sure it was great and in a lot of in a lot of cases, um, do you remember it? No, and I think uh, I, if it comes on, I think like if it came on, you'd probably be like, "Oh, I, I think I've seen." Oh, yeah, I've seen that movie. That's Gladiator. But it's not like you're walking around humming it, which is which is like fine. I, I mean, I feel like I feel like I should be calling up the theme to Gladiator. Um, hang on just a second. Uh. What was the what was the movie? Oh right. So let's look at Wild Wild West, which was a very cool television show that Will Smith remade into a terrible movie. And Will Smith remade it into a terrible movie. But the Wild Wild West theme, like. Will decided he needed to rewrite it into a song that went wild, wild west, right? <laughs> wild, wild west, which is a total like uptown funk take on it. But here's the original. That was wild, back wild, when he would theme. when he would when he would do his like uh, his sort of record scratching, but with his voice instead of with an actual record in that song. A lot of that in that song. Are you you queuing something up? Can you hear this? Barely. Well, uh, okay. You know what? The classic example of the classic example of this. I don't even know why I'm doing the Wild Wild West theme because the classic example is Peter Gunn. Mm, mm-hmm. The theme to Peter Gunn, and also the theme to the Pink Panther. These Henry Mancini yeah. tracks. Yeah. Now Henry Mancini was capable of writing a TV theme that completely communicated everything about it with no lyrics. Like, think about the Pink Panther theme. Ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. Ba-da-da-da-da-dum. Like, it's... Absolute. What does it say? It says, "Jewel thief mm-hmm. sneaking in mm-hmm. to steal a diamond." Right. But it's also massively hooky. Um, like you want to hear it again, and and then it has other elements that come in, like 
like the the instrumentation changes, stuff kind of s- switches around. Like it's uh, earlier on, the melody was being played by this group of instruments. Now it's being played by this one, and there's uh, there are melodies happening underneath it. And that's that's what's so frustrating about Game of Thrones. It is in it's the the composer understands what Henry Mancini was doing. He's capable of listening to a Mancini um, theme and seeing what's happening. And then he tries to import that template over to what he's doing. And, and, and it gratifies everybody because it sounds as if it sounds like you can see where the stencil was, was he's, you know, he's using that stencil to, to write his score, but compare it to Peter Gunn, where if you listen to Peter Gunn, um, or the James Bond theme, you're getting all that same kind of gratification, but it's, but it's real. It's like, it's actually successful. It, and, and the Peter Gunn theme, it, it just repeats. It's a total loop, like pre pre-loop music. And, um, I mean, it just does that over and over again, but sometimes it's the brass playing it, sometimes it's the guitar. But it's like you can see the guy with the gun. You can see the sharp-dressed, like, spy dude with the gun in your your imaginarium. Also, that movie or that uh, theme song won a Grammy Award Hmm. um, for, like, Album of the Year. It's like, that's a TV theme. That's, you know, Mancini's winning Academy Awards and Grammys, writing these themes that are like, he, he wrote Moon River. Come on. Smart guy. Good guy. No, I'm, you know, and I'm mad now, or I'm sad rather, um, because whoever the Game of Thrones composer is, I'm sure he's a very nice person, he or she. It's a he. I, um, I saw a thing that he did explaining like how he wrote it and everything else. Yeah, I'm sure he's great. I'm sure he's wonderful. Oh, here's a, here, this is hilarious. I called up the Peter Gunn theme on YouTube and the up next thing yeah is a video mashup of old movie stars dancing to <laughs> uptown funk <laughs> now perfect either my computer can hear me mm-hmm. and youtube can hear what i'm saying in our in our show and is throwing this up here or this is the state of america today this is where we're at where it's like, oh, you like the Peter Gunn theme? How would you like Uptown Funk? It's really, really, it's, it's, ugh. It makes me very man. Moon River, Academy Award for Best Original Song, and then went on to become a hit for, for Andy Williams. He just sang it and put it on the radio. Try that with your Game of Thrones theme. Now, what's frustrating 
is that one of the only other shows that I've watched in the last several years is uh, Jessica Jones. I don't know how. I don't know how I ended up watching Jessica Jones. Have you it's seen not- all of both seasons, or are you uh, partway through <coughs> some of them, or what? Because I'm, I'm almost at the end of the first season right now. I really like it. I've seen all of the first season, and I've seen uh, the first couple of episodes of the second season. And you know, when you have a really good first season like that, it's very hard to like come back in with the second seeds and and not like <clears throat> like I there are a lot of shows I've bailed on after the first season. Sure. Um for whatever reason, like I didn't even I couldn't even watch Mad Men past like season one or two. I don't I have no idea what happened to Mad Men when they like went all sixties and got all groovy like i just couldn't i couldn't stick it out uh but jessica jones i'm i'm in i'm earned a second season i'm bumbling along i'm giving it a try um and her theme is is super good but absolutely derived from the house of cards theme and i can't say that with confidence except to my ears it's like it's playing in the same sandbox We would like to thank Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Casper products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. You know, you spend one third of your life sleeping. Why not be comfortable? The experts at Casper, they work tirelessly to make a quality sleep surface that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. They have a breathable design that helps you sleep cool. It regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And now they have two other mattresses in addition to the original Casper mattress, the Wave and the Essential. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. And the Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. It's true. They have a 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. That means you get to have this thing in your house and you get to sleep on it for 100 nights. If you're not happy, guess what? Give you your money back and they come and they take it away. It's pretty awesome. I've got a Casper mattress and I love it. I remember when I got it, my son, who's 10, he jumped on it and he said, oh my God, I, I want this. I don't want my bed anymore. And we spent twice as much on his bed. So uh, it, it really is comfortable. Here's the thing. You've got to go to casper.com slash roadwork to get $50 towards select mattresses. And then you use the promo code roadwork at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that is uh, $50 towards select mattresses at casper.com slash roadwork using promo code roadwork at checkout. Thanks very much to Casper for supporting this program. I really do feel like TV producers are scared cats. Nobody wants to be, nobody wants to take a risk. Nobody wants to do an adventure for the most part. And with themes, especially it's this, it's this thing of like, well, that worked for them. Let's steal that idea. Right. But I mean, that's the same for all TV and pretty much all TV and movies now too. Well, it is, it is, but I'm not a, I'm not a TV maker, but I am a song strummer. Or, you know, were, 
was I was were one. Um, so this is you know, but also this is a two a.m. tweet that I'm sending out. I can't you can't hold me to that accountable. the the uh, The theme to the wire, which was written by Tom Waits. Have you ever um, met him? I've never met Tom Waits. He seems like he'd be so cool to hang out with. Like I could he, just not keep up with him. He seems very, like he very, very interesting, but he also, I think knows that he's interesting. Um, and, but also he has no, like, I think one of the things about meeting your heroes and I'm not, I'm not somebody that like all through the nineties was a Tom Waits worshiper. And I know there were a lot of people like it, but Tom Waits has never, although I'm not a worshiper, he's also never let me down. You know, like Tom Waits, even more so than the Decemberists works in a vernacular. Um, he is, he inhabits a character. His music is consistent with the character. His look is consistent with the character. Like he's never, he's never broken character. Um, and I think for a lot of people that to them means that he is that character. And I think at this point he probably is in the same way that Bruce Springsteen is the character that he is. It's just that Tom Waits's character. When you say character, it almost makes it sound like this is a, a fabrication as opposed to a genuine uh, in other words, he's not just being himself that he, he, the implication is that he has crafted a persona that he now inhabits. Do you think well, that's the case? I'm not saying it's not. I just want to get your way in on that because are you, play, are of, you playing in character or is this you? I mean, we uh, all play characters. Okay, fine. I'm not talking about what regular people do when they leave the house. I'm talking about like, is he putting on airs of, I'm I'm the guy that goes and does this thing, so I need to look this way, and I need to dress this way, and I need to say these kinds of things, because that's not something that Tom Waits would say. Is Tom Waits would say this. You know what I mean? Are you saying that, or are you saying that, that, that this is sort of just who he is? Are you seriously asking me that question? Yeah, of course I'm asking you that question, because I want you to, you're, you know, you're in this uh, industry. Well, but the answer is self-evident. Tom Waits looks and sings and dresses. I mean, everything about him is consistent with being a stevedore in the 1930s. But Tom Waits was born like in 1950 in Pomona, California. Like Tom Waits is not, there is no such thing as Tom Waits in his time. Like Tom Waits came up in the 1970s, but was singing in a singing and perform like not just singing, performing the character of someone from a time long ago. Uh, you know, the I ocean was, doesn't want me today. I'm just sitting here in front of this out of tune piano <laughs> singing for these for these <laughs> exotic dancers. Who are sitting here just drinking their lonely drinks in this lonely old bar by the edge of the pier. And it's like, you're from Pomona, dude. 
And well, no, you're not. You're none of those things. That's a that is not your natural accent or way of talking. Like he it, in 1975, he was 25 years old, and he was already talking like that and singing like that. And like, here's a song about a goyle. It's like my goyle, really. But he did, he does an amazing job. And when you think about Bob Dylan, who's a Jewish kid from Minnesota who shows up in New York city and is like, I'm just a folks, folks singer from, you know, from the, ah, and it's like New York. What? No, you're none of those things. And yes, we all were performers. We're all performing all the time. Bruce Springsteen's whole trip is both real, but also like a total trip. I mean, if you look at Bruce now, you realize like, he lives in a really big house with horses, like a really big house. It's in New Jersey, but it's like he can't see another house from his house. There are horses all around him, and he spends like two hours in the gym every day, his own gym. Um, but he still gets up there and is like, I'm just a working class dude because he's got to. You know, he can't get and – and the thing is his politics line up with, with who he says he is. But like I went to see I went to see Pearl Jam a couple of years ago and Eddie Vedder got up and was like, "You know, when I'm driving around town and I and I see a cop pull up behind me like in traffic, I still get freaked out." And the audience goes, "Yeah." And he's like, "Because <laughs> I remember a time when I was driving around in my broke ass Honda Civic. And you know, when a cop pulled up behind me, it meant that if I got pulled over, man, I was going to be in big trouble. And the audience is like, yeah. So I'm still like, I still don't believe that the cops should be able to drive around and just pull up behind you, man. Yeah. And it's like, what? You're 50. Now the last time that you weren't a millionaire was 28 years ago. That's the last time that you weren't a total millionaire who could have, I don't know what, what, what cop could have touched you, you know, pulled you over for what and what would have happened. But Eddie Vedder was continuing to drive his broken ass civic because he was inhabiting that character. You remember that tour that Pearl Jam did where the band, the entire band and everybody associated with them was touring in a jet from venue to venue. And Eddie by himself was driving like a rusty Ford van from show to show because he couldn't get his head around the fact that he was a millionaire and was in a band that was flying in a jet. And eventually the guys in Pearl Jam had to say, Hey, you're embarrassing us. Right. Like we're driving, we're flying from show to show because that's better because we can afford to, because we're rich now, but also that's better because we can play these shows and we don't have to drive and we're not tired all the time. And you like rolling up in your rusty van. And every time you leave the venue, we're like, is he going to make it to the next one? Is he going to get kidnapped or killed? Is he going to crash because he's exhausted? Like, what are you trying to prove? Stop it. Stop it. Just accept reality. The thing about Tom Waits is he never disappointed me. He never broke character. He never made a, dis a disco album. He never said, 
you know what people want from Tom Waits? They want, you know, like they want a cleaned up version of Tom Waits. Like Tom Waits just did, even when he had a hit, like he had hits on the radio in the eighties, not like massive hits, but you know, downtown train was a radio hit, but it was consistent. It was in, it was like absolutely, totally who he was purporting to be. And, and I think by the, by 1990, Tom Waits had inhabited that character so completely that he is that he does exist and he is a time traveler. He exists in a, in a, um, bubble that he, he's the only person that lives in there and it's brilliant. you look at it and you're like, Oh yes, I wish, you know, I wish. And all these contemporary bands, all the, the beardy banjo bands that stomp on the floor and go, Hey, (laughs) they're also trying to get, they're trying to convince us that they, they live in this, um, in this alternate universe where, you know, they're playing this music and of this and their, and their fashion. It all suggests that they're members of the labor movement, like the pre-war labor movement. And they're singing these songs and we're all meant to like stand up and start marching happily, you know, but not, not like we're a little bit angry because we're not getting paid enough, but also we're happy because we're bringing a worker's paradise to the world. Right. But all these kids, they all grew up in, you know, suburban tract homes that the, the suspenders and the hats, like they don't come by those. Honestly, they, they adopted them after they got out of college or sometime in college. They were like a hat. Yeah. What about a hat? And the, and, and they're, they're, they're characters. And in, in answer to your question, like, am I inhabiting a character? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what, like, is, is it, how different is the character from the, the John that I would know if I just, you know, hung out with you, visited your house on a Tuesday afternoon well, or would, or, it, or are you always in that character? So it's, it's essentially, there is no real difference. I think all of these characters that I'm talking about are, were all attempts to give the performer confidence that they didn't naturally feel when Tom Waits put on his like ratty hat and his like dirty leather jacket. It was a form of armoring himself because he didn't have a hundred percent confidence. And when he put those things on and sat down at the piano and said, I'm here to play some songs for you. And the audience probably at his first shows laughed like, ha, get a load of this guy. Right. But he was safe because he was inside his Mm -hmm, character. mm -hmm. And then people were like, he's good. He's really good. But he's like, it it almost, I'm sure at the time, 1970, mid seventies, I'm sure it sounded like, uh, he, he seemed like the character of Disneyland. Um, just as much as Devo did like Devo's completely, it's completely transparent that Mark Mothersbaugh is not a future robot. Right. Who's like, right. But, and we're, and we think that's hilarious. 
and Devo, I think their music was was marginalized because they seemed like a like a gimmick, even mm-hmm. though their music's brilliant. I right, think. right. My my favorite all time band. But Tom Waits during the same time period and doing the same sort of cosplay, his cosplay was much more like this is real and people wanted it. People also wanted wanted it to be be real. Yeah. They want, they want, I don't think people thought that Mark Mothersbaugh, like you said, was, (laughs) was a robot or like woke up in the morning and, and you know, put the dome on. I think he was, it was understood that this was an act and all the weird interviews that he did, I mean, people came away thinking that's a weird dude, even if it's an act, like still you got to be pretty weird to give those kinds of interviews. Those guys are weird. But, and I say that in a complimentary way, but I, I agree. I think like Tom Waits is, it's, it extends, it's, he's Tom Waits all the way down. But we all do this. If you think about the original version of They Might Be Giants that originally came on the scene. Yeah. John Flansburg performed with a pipe in his mouth, like fully <laughs> embracing, like we are, we're the kind of 1950s normal nerd. Right. That was a fashionable way of saying we're not just regulars. And, you know, Flansburg is not your first idea when you look at him of what a pop star is like John Linnell when he was young, he was just a pretty, he was, he was pretty, you know, like a pretty boy. But Flansburg's always been a little chunky and he's a little bit like sort of like normal dad. And it would have been incredibly scary to get up there on MTV. Yeah. And have just been like, here I am, check me out. So Flansburg puts a pipe in his mouth and puts some, you know, some uh, thick, brimmed glasses and he's now he's playing a character and now we can say oh there's a reason he's in a pop band because he's wearing a costume he's in character he's a he is a um you know he becomes an icon of himself and the thing is those things are true of flansburg he doesn't smoke a pipe currently but you know he that character is true of him but also it was an armor that enabled him to do this impossible thing, which was become a pop star. And in answer to your question about me, I have put on, I have garbed myself in a lot of robes uh, that are more confident than I am. Like, a lot, and, and it's not a persona like, if you look at photographs of me taken over the years, there isn't a clear hook that I was going for. And that is a, and that is a failing of mine. Like if I had Oh, been that able, you didn't like pick a, a shtick and go with yeah. it consistently? Yeah. If you looked at, if you look at the Decemberists, like the Decemberists keep kind of changing their, um, their fashion they keep like oh now we're wearing stripy jackets now we're wearing you know they they kind of do this they they've they have uh somewhat like shimmered away from their original like top hats Mm -hmm. uh style of fashion but they are still doing the thing where everybody in the band dresses 
up for their photo shoots and they all kind of dress in a similar vein. Like they haven't abandoned their concept. I kept abandoning my concept. It's like, oh, I'm a college professor. Well, now I'm in a Western shirt. Well, now (laughs) I'm, you know, now I'm like, like trying to look like a sensitive indie rocker, but I'm a chubby too big for my shirts. Like I'm not, I'm not Connor Oberst. I'm not beautiful. I'm not, um, I don't look even very sensitive really. Uh, and I, you know, I tried all these things and I think, I think I probably failed at them all. All of the looks that I tried when I was a pop star, I failed. I should have just had a pipe or something. If I had just picked a thing, if I had just picked hats even, uh, and, and what's crazy is when I should have worked, worked for slash and worked for slash. I should have picked beard because <laughs> I was wearing a beard all through the nineties off and on and beards were not a thing in pop. Right. Music. If you had it or anywhere, um, ZZ on, top is the only one that comes to mind. Well, you know, there are always guys with beards, but, but, but in indie rock at the time that I was starting, I was wearing a beard and I just would shave it for the photo shoots. Like, and then I would grow it back immediately because I didn't, because I was wrong. I didn't stick with my thing that I, that I was, where I was comfortable, which was I wore a beard cause I don't, cause shaving is like a lot of work and I like the way I looked with a beard and still do. And, and yet even as late as 2010, Whatever the last time I played the Sasquatch Festival was, I shaved right before the show. And I think it was after looking at photographs of us playing that show that I that I realized, oh, I'm just never gonna shave again. It doesn't it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um and I still do it sometimes, but but just I always sort of, I always wait for your Instagram post when you yeah, shave just, or you're just just the mustache will be there. I do it just to scare my kid now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, the, but more like my persona that I initially put on and then gradually inhabited was this one of of someone who is um, who's not worried about what other people think and that's a total put on. Um, because when I was 22, I was extremely worried about what other people thought and so much so that it paralyzed me so much so that I didn't, you know, I was, I was, I was incredibly, um, anxious and self-conscious and vain and, and, uh, and just afraid uh, but my reaction was always contrary. Um, and, and it was, it was something that I gradually figured out, which was, and, and, and I think I've, I've described it thusly before that I, I read a thing pretty early on, you know, because I'm always re- trying to read about the CIA and the, the idea that the CIA would never knowingly recruit a homosexual because that put them at risk Mm. of being blackmailed. And if you were, you know, if you were gay and in the CIA and the Russians 
figured it out, then they could, you know, send a, send someone to get you engaged in a, in a romantic affair and then they would have you, you know, they'd, they'd be able to turn you because your terror at being exposed would make it easy to manipulate you. I remember reading that and thinking, well, the only solution to that is to be out. Like as soon as you're out, as soon as you reveal to the world that you're gay, then the Russians have no power over you. The problem then was that you couldn't do that because you couldn't be publicly gay at the time. And it was a real conundrum. But for me, during the era I was coming up, like I could be publicly whatever kind of uh, weirdo I was. I could just say, well, this is what I'm into. This is what I do. This is, and, and so there, so no one has any, anything over me. And, and that mentality informs everything I do. It's why I talk candidly on our show Mm -hmm. because I feel like if I share it, it no longer has power to. That's fascinating. It can't scare me. Right. Nobody can say, oh, well, huh, you're just, uh," because I'm like, yeah, I sure am. Uh, I talk about it pretty openly. Talk about money, talk about sex, talk about religion, talk about depression and fear and all these things that, like, the idea of talking about mental illness publicly was something that people were terrified of. Oh, yeah. And still, I think a lot of people are terrified. They're terrified of being exposed. They're terrified of people knowing what their what their romantic life is or whether or not they're a little pervy or whether or not, um, well, or just having, their, having the fact that they're scared at all be, by, be known by others. But that was a, that was a, a, a conscious decision on my part. Right. I mean, I was not, um, I was not always so brave when I was in high school. I was afraid. I was afraid that people would know that I was a virgin so much so that when people would assume that I wasn't a virgin, which people did, I wouldn't, I was, you know, I was very happy to, just sit there and go like, ha ha. Yeah. You know, like when I'm doing the sex, <laughs> right. Um, and I never like bragged about a thing I hadn't done, but people would say like, well, you know, you're kind of a, you know, pretty, pretty well known as a ladies man. And I'd be like, yep, ladies, <laughs> that's you. I'm one of their men, a ladies, man, one of the, that kind of man, the one that is with the ladies, uh, because I was like, what's the alternative? No, I'm never, I'm a virgin. Like, that's not really, I didn't have that kind of boldness when I was 16. I do now. Like I wrote, when I went back to my 30th high school reunion, I wrote an apology letter to everybody that I posted, (laughs) that I posted to like some common forum where I was like, look, I was such a jerk in high school and I know it now and I'm, and I'm sure I was a jerk to a lot of you and I'm sorry. Like I'm really sorry at what a jerk I'm, I surely was. 
And I know nobody's sitting around thinking about it. Uh, I, I'd be very surprised if anybody was reluctant to see me or say hi because of something I said when I was 15. But maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I said some stuff that was so terrible that, that even now it, it, it stings. And I honestly, I don't remember. So I can't apologize to each of you individually. I just know I was terrible. And so this is a general apology. And if you do want to come up and say hello to me and tell me something that I did and like get it off your chest, I will totally apologize for it. Like personally to you because I, I deeply regret it. I didn't mean any of that stuff. I was just terrified. I was terrified and I was sharp witted. So I could turn that terror into quote unquote comedy, but was a, it was a pretty violent kind of high school comedy. That was just a, that was just me swinging a broad, a flaming broadsword in all directions. <laughs> but to realize somewhere along the line that, that, that my greatest strength was revelate to reveal and to do it with, to do it with confidence and then, and then learning that when I did it, nothing bad happened. I mean, years ago long time before podcasts. Mm -hmm. Um, I was giving interviews where I was like, well, yeah, I'm bisexual. Like that's not a, a, uh, I'm not saying that as to, to be a hero. It's just a, it's just a simple fact. And to, and, and the thing is I could conceal it the rest of my life quite easily. It would require nothing because I'm not, compelled or motivated to be, uh, to, to have my identity be the thing that you, that you know about me, right? I'm not out trying to, um, to be on parade, but also I have no reason to hide it either. It doesn't, it's just a true fact. It's not a thing, it's not a put on. Um, and I'm not even, you know, like I don't, on a, on a scale of one to 10, I wouldn't even put a, put a, like a marker on it. It's just like a simple thing. It's just like having blue eyes. And I'm of the, I'm of the school that suspects that, that that kind of sexual interest is on a continuum for everybody. And I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't go up to somebody and say, look, sexuality is on a continuum. And so therefore you're not as straight as you think you are. Like that's none of my business. It's not up to me, but that's how I feel about it. But it like it defanged a lot of the things that I, you know, a lot of the behavior that I had in the nineties that was confused and was scary to me at the time, I was just like, oh, this is, a, there's a simple thing to this. This is just like who it's another like kind of not that, um, not that profound truth about a person, you know, about me. And 
learning to say that I don't, learning to say that I'm not a hundred percent confident that I'm really that talented. Um, and making a kind of a distinction between like the fact that I work really hard on some things and don't work hard on others. And I am kind of equally praised for both. Like the things that I work really hard on, people are like, good job. <laughs> and the things that I don't work very hard on, they're like, Hey, all right. <laughs> it's like, Oh, I see. I see. That's, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a hundred percent confident, um, in the work that I do. And rather than pretend that I am, I, I mean, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure that it serves me even to say, I don't, you know, like if you come to me and say like, your songs are fine, they're not as good as the fruit bats. Like I, I can accept that now. And partly it's because it hurt so bad when people said that to me back when I was still hoping that I was, uh, that I was really good. Um, and I don't, I've thought about it a lot. I've wrestled with it a lot, whether or not some of that isn't bravery so much as it is surrender that, that to admit like, well, you know, uh, there are a lot of people that it's not that people hate my music. It's that, that a lot of people just don't care about it. And to, to say like, yeah, that's probably maybe a, a fair assessment of it, of where it belongs, you know, maybe that is a form of self defeat, but the alternative isn't anything I can do or say publicly, right? I can't go out and fight everybody who's, who thinks my songs are boring. Mm -hmm. Like if there were a bunch of people writing like, this is the worst music ever made, I could feel, I could be excited because a lot of the time music that is described that way ends up being validated by history. What is this noise? Well, my friend, that is a little thing called punk rock, which is going <laughs> to dominate the world for 30 years. But right now it sounds like noise to you because you don't get it. But like nobody says that about my stuff. They're just like, oh yeah, it's like, you know, mid, mid tempo indie rock. Sure. I, there's a lot of, of, uh, versions of this available and I prefer the shins now and I'm going to go. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of hooks in the shins that aren't like garbled like mine are, but is that defeatist? I mean, all it is, all it does is it protects me. It protects me from other people saying it hurtfully. Mm. It protects me from being surprised by it when I'm flipping through a magazine and I'm reading an article and the article says like, well, you know, like what made this record stand out from that whole host of sort of like mid tempo average indie bands, like the long winters and friends. And it's like, I mean, it still stings, but it, but I don't like 
fall to a heap on the floor and say, because it's not a surprise, you know? And I don't, I, and I'm not describing some magazine article that I actually have stumbled on that says that, but, but that's always at risk in the world. Like I stopped uh, ego Googling, whatever that phrase is. Um, I stopped Googling my own name years ago because I realized that that the that the six nice things that I read never, never, never balanced the one mean thing. I could read sixty nice things, but the one mean thing was what I what I took away. And why do that to myself? Yeah. Why why go looking for that trouble? Smart. So I don't do that anymore and I don't, you know, and after a while you don't miss it. After a while you're no longer wondering like, is there some teenager that's discovered my music in the, you know, in Indiana this week? I really want to hear about it because you just don't want to hear. I, I don't know what, what happened. The other, the other day I was looking for something and I caught a, I, somebody sent me something or, you know, I was reading an I was reading a thing and then I followed a link and then I was somewhere else and I saw over in the corner of some search results, my eye glanced across that there was a Reddit where people were still mad about the punk rock article that I wrote six years ago. Still mad. And still over there like, like shitting on me about it. Really? I could, and I saw this just in the glimpse of an eye and I was like, couldn't be less interested. That conversation is not meant for me. And although they would love it, if I would go over and look at it, it does, it gives me nothing. It serves me nothing. They're not going to teach me anything. I'm not going to come away from there any more than I already do thinking, huh, probably shouldn't, you know, like if I could go back and not have written that article, I'd be fine. I'd be fine with that. That was not meant to be a shot across the bow where I began a lifelong crusade to argue against punk rock to all the punk rockers of the world. Like that's not what the, that that article intended. It was supposed to be a funny tease directed at the people that read the Seattle Weekly. It did. It, I had no intention of it going viral. I was not trying to communicate to the members of Fugazi <laughs> anything. I didn't want to hear their retort. I didn't want uh, a thousand people to speak on behalf of Fugazi because Fugazi had too much dignity to wade in. Like I just wasn't interested in any of that. And the, and and as far as I'm concerned, like that whole reaction just confirms the snark that I put into that article, which I wrote in, in two hours. Uh, but it, but it made me infamous in certain circles and I am still vulnerable to that because I took a stand, a public stand against a thing that no one ever says a bad word about. Like the only people that say bad things about punk rock are people that don't get it. 
we would like to say thank you very much to Brooke Linen. Some of the best bedding in the whole world. You know, you spend a third of your life sleeping, right? In your sheets. They make a difference with how you sleep. You can start getting better sleep with the best sheets. And these sheets come from Brooke Linen. The best, most comfortable sheets. They don't have a big markup. And this is a way for you to like upgrade your nightly routine and help you feel more well-rested every single day. Their philosophy of this company is that uh, the most beautiful, comfortable home essentials can be yours without the crazy prices. There's no unnecessary markups, no fees. And you know, you go price out bedding and you're like, wow, the nice stuff is just too expensive. I just can't afford it. You can afford it. Most bedding is marked up by as much as 300%, but not so with Brooklyn. And that's why they're the fastest growing bedding brand in the world. Over 15,000 five-star reviews. Winner of the best of online bedding category by Good Housekeeping. They've got tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can mix and match when you order. You're not stuck with one thing. You say, oh, I want this one white. I want this one with the stripes. I love the stripe patterns they have. This is just my opinion. You get what you want. It's up to you. I'm saying you need to get the stripe ones because they're awesome. But this is luxury bedding, underpriced. You've got to try these sheets today. My Brooklinen sheets, they're the best, most comfortable sheets I've slept on. Brooklinen.com. They have an exclusive offer for just listeners of this amazing program, $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code ROADWORK at brooklinen.com. They're so confident that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. And the only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use the promo code ROADWORK at brooklinen. I'll spell it. People have said, Dan, does stop me on the street. Dan, how do you spell brooklinen.com? How do you spell it? And, and I usually say, and I usually say, no problem, I'll spell it for you. Brooke, B-R-O-O-K, linen, L-I-N-E-N, dot com. And the promo code is ROADWORK. Brooke Linen, the best sheets ever. Everybody else in Michael, and it was the, you know, the impetus to write the thing, was just to say like, have you ever seen a thing like punk rock that no one will criticize? No one will just... Well, just emperors know close this and say some of the things that are true about punk rock, which are it's just it's not the greatest thing that ever happened to human beings. And yet, in at least in my culture. No one will ever say a bad word about any aspect of punk rock and punk. The term is meaningless. It's like because it's used to describe everything. I mean, there are insurance companies right now that are putting ads on TV that are like, we're the punkest insurance company of all. No. Fuck yeah. Go look at how, how punk in all of its many iterations is being used now to sell everything. Chevy trucks, like everybody's punk and how everybody's been punk for 20 years. And when and 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 a big part of the re- response to that article that I got was people writing and saying, "Punk is what you make it." <laughs> and and I was like, "Well, then it, then 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 it's meaningless. What are you talking about? It is what you make it. Like it's either a thing or it's not." And all those people that are like, "It is what you make it," will they're the first ones to turn on somebody and say, "Like well, that's not punk." Oh, so it's not what I make it then. Or it's not what anybody wants it to be. It's a thing. It's a definitely a thing. You know what's punk and what's not. But but at the same time, it's this all-encompassing 
uber rubric that, you know, that gets to be everything and nothing. The thing is, I grew up in that world. I'm as punk as anybody. I'm punker than you. And I don't mean you, Dan. I mean anybody that's listening. I'm fucking punk as fuck. More punk than anyone. I drove across this country 300,000 miles in a shitty old van playing for 100 bucks a night. Like, I'll stand up my punk rock against anybody's. But that's only if you agree that it is what you make it because I wasn't claiming to be punk through any of that. I was claiming to be very sensitive uh, college professor. But like, what are the talismans? Like if you work, if you work all day at Amazon, but you've got a, but, uh, but at night you've got a, uh, you put a leather jacket on and listen to minor threat. Are you punk? Or is the, is the guy in the mohair sweater that's, uh, that's like renting a car and playing, kids rec centers with his with his zither is he punk which one is punk (laughs) like it's just a bunch of it's just a bunch of noise um but anyway that's an example of a thing that i wrote with a tremendous amount of confidence a confidence in my sense of humor a confidence in my viewpoint where i was like this is funny like this is hilarious no one ever pops this balloon. No one ever says, this is inconsistent. No one ever says, there's a lot of negativity in punk. Um, there's a lot of like, den- like s- uh, fundamentally saying like, that stuff's not cool. That, you know, punk is, is, is arrayed often in opposition to other stuff. The world, the man, the, the normals. And it's got a lot of negativity in it. And, and again, the reply to that was like, punk saved my life. It's not negative. It's positive. You just don't understand. And I'm like, okay, I don't understand. And punk saved your life by describing all the things that scared you as being dumb and stupid and shitty. And you don't have to do that anymore. Now you've met your real friends who are punk. And now you're punk and now you're safe, but that's not positive. I mean, it's maybe it's, it was positive for you, but you know, did it save your life or did you just grow up? That's true for all of us. Like I could, there's a lot of things I could point to and say that saved my life because before I discovered it, I felt bad. And then after I discovered it, I felt good. But for the, for most of us, that's just that you aren't 15 anymore. Right. But I had so much confidence when I wrote that, that I, that it would be received how I intended, that it would be understood that it was a, it was first and foremost, a humor article where I was taking a contrarian stance on a thing that we all understood what it was. We all understood what it had done for us. Like, do I want a world where punk never happened? Absolutely not. Like some of my favorite things ever resulted from it. I was just, I I imagined I was an insider who was saying to other insiders, look at this. Like we treat this, this, this rock and roll movement the exact same way that people treat religion. Like the way fanatics talk about their religion. Right. You cannot criticize it. The, the saints are saints. The tenets of the religion are 
are uh, inviolate and and respected universally by everyone, and you cannot critique it. But when that thing came out and the and the the violent wave that it generated like crashed against me, I did not have that confidence anymore. I did not want to fight these people. I didn't want to I didn't want people to come up to me on the street and say, fuck you. Um when I was running for city council, I was standing at an event in my tie with my speech in my hand, ready to get up to the podium and say how I felt about, you know, Seattle housing and some guy, my age kind of sidles up next to me and says, you're John Roderick. You wrote that punk rock article. And I'm (laughs) like, I'm thinking about something else. And I looked over and I was like, yeah, that's right. And he was like, the stupidest thing I ever read. And I was like, oh yeah. And then he like, like skated. I mean, totally like walked away from me as fast as he could because he'd said his thing that he'd been walking around carrying like carrying around. that around until that one chance when he knew he was eventually going to see you. Yeah. And he could like unload, later, unload on you with that. He could tell me that it was the stupidest thing he'd ever read, but he didn't want me to say like, well, you know what, man, go fuck yourself. Or, you know, I hope you vote for me in the election or have a nice day. I mean, he didn't want me to get any word in. And the knowledge that that is still out there, that there are guys walking around this country who are like, if I ever run into that guy, I'm going to punch him in the nose for what he said about punk. Or the other thing is, if I ever put out another record, the like hyper predictable like one eighth of the reviews of that record that start out and it might even be as many as one quarter that start out by saying, well, the guy that hates punk rock put out a record of like mealy mouthed pussy indie garbage. And now's my chance to get that get back because I'm a music writer and he talked shit about my church. I know that that's coming. If I, you know, if I was, was to release music, I would have to put some filter on the email that I got. And if it had the words punk rock and bullshit in them, <laughs> that it would filter out all the emails that, that contained those words. Right, right. Because, you know, no one's ever going to say, no one's ever going to write me. In, and the thing is, what's crazy is I do see people tweet me sometimes with links to things and they're like, turns out punk rock is bullshit. And then I open the link and it's a Chevy Tahoe ad. (laughs) It's like you used to be punk, but now you know that what you really needed was a bigger trunk. And it's like, Oh, that's terrible. But I don't want to be that guy either. I don't want to be sitting there like, like, like around my witch's cauldron going like, ha ha ha, I hate punk. Like it was, it was a, it was a fucking humor article. I was trying to get, I was trying to get Mark Arm to, to read it and go like, fucking dumbass. But with a smile, you know, I wanted to like, I wanted to just kick some dirt on some dude's (laughs) 
boots around here. But in a way, it's like it's this it's an example of me in character doing a thing and the reaction to my character, to my persona, this guy with a lot of confidence, confidence enough to take on all the big, all the big wheels, all the, you know, to take on the major movement of my generation. Um, it turned out like that was just a put on man. <laughs> I wasn't, <laughs> I don't, uh, <laughs> I didn't, I don't want that trouble. Like I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't honestly want to make everybody that mad. Um, I was just kidding. Do, 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 do. Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name.